0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Monster, Dear Monster, a monster exploration podcast where we take a look at monsters from their inception to their current day pop culture appearance and everywhere in between. I'm one of your hosts, Dave. I'm joined today by Leonard. Hello. BB, not a toy.
1: Uh, (laughs) Leonard's pet cat. BB the The new kitten is is being a kitten everywhere at, at, at all times the he's <laughs> the he's the er kitten
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and as you can hear the return of our guest Jala
2: hello
0: welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me yes, I'm really excited <laughs> to talk about this one really this. excited. You don't see me, but I'm vibrating in my chair.
0: <laughs> well, unfortunately, Cameron has had technical issues, so he will not be joining us, but I think we will be able to handle the topic at hand, which is, in fact, the film Legend. Yay! Yes. And then Leonard's also apparently excited. <laughs>
2: well, so... um. I'm not sure about you guys, but I grew up watching this movie, and this movie actually—I understand. um, Like we'll talk all about it, but I understand there's plenty of flaws, but it still remains one of my favorite movies, and was actually extremely formative to, like, just my worldview and things. So that's that's my very brief hot take on it. How about you guys? Do you have any history with this movie, or is this new to you?
1: Um, I, I, I. I'm raising my hand. I, 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 I volunteer as tribute. Um, well, first tribute. Um, I realized uh, upon re-watching Legend um, that I constantly uh, fuse it and Crawl together into one, uh, one film in my mind. For whatever reason, I think it's the swamp. It's the, the swamp area <laughs> things in both of them. That I'm just like, yeah, and then that's when they cross the spider web with, like, the, the stop-motion glass spider, right? Oh, no, that's Kroll. That's that's Kroll, not Legend. Um,
0: it's, <laughs> it's a fellowship going into a castle. Yep. And there's a swamp, <laughs> and they both stick their hands in lava. Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. Um, also... Um, uh, this, this might be heresy for a number of, of people out here and possibly one of the, uh, one of our, our hosts, but, um, I, I cannot help but find Tom Cruise incredibly distracting in this movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I had the biggest crush on him slash Jack as when I was like a young person. So like, you know, that, that was definitely a thing.
1: Yeah, I, all I see is Tom Cruise and I'm like you're trying, you're trying, but all I see is Tom Cruise like it you might as well if if I were to visualize uh what my experience watching Tom Cruise in this movie it it is just superimpose a gif of him jumping on Oprah's couch over like the entire movie. And I'm just like I can't. I like I know this is a character, but I all I see is Tom Cruise. Um, but I do the, like yeah. the movie overall. It's just incredibly <laughs> distracting. Well,
2: the The sad part is that the U.S. release of this was so chopped up from the director's cut that you don't see his actual acting <laughs> yeah that i also
1: noticed a lot of not acting in 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 the movie from him as well
2: but like the the director's cut which is uh, how much how much longer is it dave is it like half an hour longer or something uh, it's, Yeah, about, it's about twenty twenty 20
0: minutes at least okay
2: yeah it's a lot longer and like there is so much characterization in that extra bit of course there is yeah, and like that's where all the acting is. So that's the reason why Tom Cruise absolutely hated this movie. Um the not the movie itself but the American release of it, yep. the theatrical release in America. And like literally the entire cast, like if you watch the making of stuff, everybody on the cast is like, "Why did he cut it?" I mean, even the director's cut apparently is not nearly the opus that the original version was before there were a bunch of screenings and Ridley Scott got all self-conscious because of some potheads that were making rude comments. And then like, he just, uh, went and hacked up the film and then cut it down. Like, I think the original, original, original cut was like th- almost three hours long. So, you know, he chopped out massive swaths of what the original story was. Yeah. He, he so, cut out about half
0: an hour of film.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so that's that's one really major thing that everybody needs to know about this movie in the first place is that it is completely different. It's a complete, pretty much a different film if you watch the U.S. release versus the director's cut. Um, and I say that because the director's cut, uh, like I said before, has a bunch of character nuance and information that is not. Present in the U.S. release, what they did is they took a suspense movie that's about light and dark and balance and like shows flaws and good traits in every single character, to being a standard '80s, um, you know, just fantasy film with archetypes for characters instead of characters with nuance and that's something where like all of the real acting was in the director's cut (laughs) you miss it all because it's not in the u.s version so i had literally never seen the director's cut until i went uh to watch it for this podcast and then i went back and watched the theatrical release again and went wow I like both of these movies, but they are different movies.
1: <laughs> yes i can I can only imagine that the the director's cut must be a a radically different film if if all of the characterization lives in in those twenty
2: minutes. Well, different things that are really noticeable in the um, director's cut versus the theatrical release in America. Um, say, for example. Jack is a lying bastard in in the uh, director's cut version who is lusting after Lily and only kind of falls in love with her, but I'm not even really convinced about that, um, like, as the movie goes on and is just like this smitten urchin character that is being played so hard by Lily, who is just selfish and greedy and manipulative. And, like you get very little of any of that, and they retailed it and cut some new scenes in where it's a romance story, and they definitely love each other in the u s version, so it's like very, very different, and that's just a little bit there's but uh, when Gump meets Jack and um you know, like they have their initial meeting, Gump goes crazy eyes and almost like kills Jack and has, like, a total flip-out, and, you know, seems a lot more unhinged, he has psycho eyes, he is angry as hell, and, like, his agency, and all of the fairies have, you know, a lot more agency in the director's cut, and so do the goblins, so, um, like, all of that just gets flattened out in the American release, and it's really, um, stunning, like, you know, pretty shocking to see, because, you know, like, I grew up with the theatrical release, and then I go and I watch the director's cut and go, whoa! (laughs) Boy! Here's some stuff. (laughs) Um, And Darkness. In the director's cut, Darkness is not so omnipotent. He is informed about where the unicorns are by the goblins who happen to have found them in their hunts. He is not like, I sense a presence in the forest. He he didn't know. Um, and he also is completely puzzled by his attraction to Lily. And there's all this interaction between him and Lily that happens um, where he is legitimately trying to be civilized and you know like romantic and debonair and dave when we were talking about it said that he's cute and it's true like somehow tim curry makes this big giant devil character into like this cute you know charming uh kind of guy and like it
0: comes off as the scene between um Belle and the beast like when he's there he's trying to do the dining thing it it Plays like that.
2: And that's because one of Ridley Scott's influences was the old Beauty and the Beast from like the 40s or whenever that was. So um, that was one the 1946 Beauty and the Beast film. Oh, the John
1: uh, Cocteau version? Yes.
2: Yes. So that was one of his influences, and it really shows in the director's cut. Um, Whereas in the American version, he just seems like... I'm going to sort of pretend for five seconds and then I'm really mad at you. And like, that's it. And you don't get to see that nuance where it shows darkness legitimately being like, you know, like having no idea what to do and really trying for Lily and like really actually being really smitten with her. Mm -hmm. So um, like, like I said, there's a lot of nuance that is just missing from um, the U S release. Unfortunately,
0: Oh, and Dave. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Circling back around. <laughs> uh, yes, 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 sorry. Uh, yeah, so this would be one that I also watched um, as a child, um, along with the aforementioned Krull. Um, although I have not uh, conflated them in my mind, there may be some sort of trifecta between this crawl and Willow that it does exist in my head. Um, they're all in the same sort of that definitely... 80s feeling fantasy space and uh going back to rewatch this was also the first time that I had seen the um the director's cut which is strange because I owned it for many years and then I end up couldn't find it had to go out and get another copy so I could watch the uh the theatrical or the both versions really um and I think just the, the feelings that it, the complexity that exists in the director's cut, I find that, um, preferable, but it doesn't make the theatrical version like any less, uh, that, that still occupies a very like nostalgic space. And in particular, like the soundtrack is so strong, um, with the, the theatrical release that it, it's, it hits very differently. um, the director's cut is a – it's more subtle on the whole, and I think that not only was the um, theatrical release, it's um, it's targeted toward American audiences for for sure. But it's also easier to consume um, for children because the themes are, like, very – it's a, a broad stroke. Everything's up front. There's the, – the subtlety is not there, and you don't have to try to read into things. Uh, so, as a child, you can pick up on a lot of that, and that's the feeling that gets kind of carried forward, whereas when you're watching the director's cut, that's not the case. There's a lot of the acting is is in there, so a lot of that is also non-verbal. It's a, there's a lot packed into, particularly in Lily's character, her expressions. The thing how she carries herself is so different. Uh, yes. And it's, it's the same actress doing the same scenes they just very artfully like excised the bits where she's a terrible princess and left in the bits where she's p- pretending to be nice and then it just comes off as she's just very nice the entire time
2: yeah and the thing about, like there, there's several other differences but in the theatrical release she is a lady In the director's cut, she is a princess, and they underline that by referring to her as princess. She introduces herself as princess. It's beaten over your head that she is a princess, and that makes a further distance between herself and Jack. Like, if she is a lady, okay, that's one thing, but princess is a very, very high station, obviously, so she definitely can't marry that urchin kid in in the forest, you know? Um. So, like, they made that change probably to suit the whole, you know, uh, romance element that they were developing in the U.S. version. And I definitely agree with you, Dave, that um, the U.S. version is a lot easier to consume as a kid. You pick up the themes easily. I mean, like, it has this whole text in the beginning that tells you, you know, like, the whole setup of, of what's going on before the movie even begins. So, like, you already have the idea of what's happening in your head you know before the movie even starts okay so darkness wants to you know cast the world into shadow so he can rise to power and the unicorns are the only thing standing against him and you know the only people that can find unicorns are innocent people and those innocent people are these two characters we're about to show you like it's all right there they throw it out there to begin with And um, something that you mentioned was the soundtrack. Well, um, the original soundtrack, the original score, was written by uh, Jeff Goldsmith, and Tangerine Dream made the U.S. theatrical soundtrack. It's very different because the original score is more uh, of a classical kind of sound to it, and it is a lot subtler. Uh, And that works not all the time. There are some scenes that I think um really needed stronger theming than what was uh presented in that Goldsmith soundtrack but like it works on the whole along with those subtle nonverbal cues that you get from all the characters when you're watching them uh in the director's cut and the thing is is the Tangerine Dream soundtrack was made in 3 weeks i that blew my mind when i found that out because it's so good um it works perfectly, for what they were doing with the U.S. theatrical release, but there is no way in hell it would work at all with the director's cut, just because the director's cut is such a different feeling overall, has a very different tone to it. So. But yeah, it's um definitely interesting to see where they cut and where they redubbed because they redubbed a lot of lines. They even redubbed some of the lines that stayed the same just to give a slightly different tone like uh, when Nell this uh, peasant lady who Lily goes and sees all the time is uh, doing her washing and Lily pulls the washing down and runs away and Nell doesn't know that it was her in the director's cut, she said, Bloomin' fetties! And, you know, she's angry-sounding. And in the uh, U.S. release, they changed it to have a totally different sound to it. Bloomin' fetties! You know, it's just like a very different thing, even though it, it's, you know, maybe seems subtle, but, like, it's it's a significant change in the overall tone. It didn't match the right tone uh, using the original dialogue, so they had to dub it over again. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's interesting about ahead, the dubbing because I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Oh, uh that's interesting about the dubbing because there was a uh, uh, uh there was a portion of this movie where I was convinced that Tom Cruise was dubbed the entire time, was ADR the entire time. I don't know why. They're well, just... because
2: he was uh for okay. the most part. Okay. Well, because you go. Um, The thing about it is that, okay, when they were making this movie, they built the entire forest in a giant soundstage, actually the 007 soundstage, and they built the forest, put a bunch of animals in it that were real animals that were living, literally living there, and, like, while that was happening, it was so damn loud on the soundstage that they had to dub over all the lines because you couldn't hear it over the birds and the other shit <laughs> that was in there. So uh, everybody was dubbed. And then also some of the actors were like German or something like that. And because of their accents, um, they were dubbed over. Uh, Gump, for example, I believe was dubbed over Yes, completely.
1: he's, he's yeah. Swiss, I believe. and uh, uh, But I, I actually really, uh, really like the decision um, to have uh, him dubbed over by a woman, um, uh, female, a-, a voice actress. Yes. Um, it's it's a really good effect at making uh Gump significantly more fae-like and ethereal. Um,
2: well, the yeah, the actor who played Gump was eighteen at the time that he did that role. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. he doesn't look it. Um, and. The voice that dubbed over him is the voice of the actress who did Blix, because Blix was a female, um, Alice Alice Pay- Payton, I think her name is, um, and she also did the voice of Gump.
1: Ah, yeah, it's great that that I mean, once again, I think that that feels like a, a ne- they a necessity a, a production call. But I I think it was it add, adds to the film instead of detracting from from that character. Um, it, yes, the, the the oh I just wanted to also say like that that forest looks like a nightmare because for anybody with hay fever like every single <laughs> scene I was just like I just like oh my partner would just die my partner would just <laughs> go into anaphylactic shock the minute he walked in there it's just hay fever
0: everywhere. Yeah, it's it's actually chicken yeah. chicken feathers. <laughs> chicken yeah, there's feathers, chicken and feathers styrofoam. everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and and glitter, glitter apparently. Everywhere, every
2: in. everything. Darkness's hooves and hell itself is so full of glitter. I mean, like they probably still have glitter in their clothes somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. Um but we we should we should probably maybe break it down in series of events now
2: (laughs) yes we we can definitely do that dave do you want to say the overall premise of of this movie
0: sure and then we'll we'll start from the beginning with the wonderful opening quote that doesn't exist in the director's cut actually but uh the, the film itself uh revolves around uh our our two intrepid uh lovers and the the contrast they have between themselves and darkness, who is ruling over the night, over this world. Uh, the the heralds of life and I guess daylight are unicorns, and they have a they have reappeared in land, and that's causing darkness some uh, issues because he can't exist in the when, when there's sunlight. But uh, he he has a plan. So if he if he gets rid of the unicorns, that gets rid of the sunlight, and therefore he can rule and in darkness. And from there, it's in a, a bit of an adventure for them to uh, retrieve um, the unicorns and one of their unicorn the Alicorn horn, um, because one of the unicorns did not make it in the beginning, and that's that's the basic premise of the film.
2: Yeah, so basically, because unicorns can only be lured by innocence, Blix, who is a goblin under the Lord of Darkness, who serves, you know, Darkness, uh, and her or his, I don't know. I always thought that Blix was female, um, but then in one of the deleted scenes, uh, Darkness says, you can become a prince. And I was like, oh, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, uh, Blix... Blix and their, um, you know, fellow goblins use Jack and Lily as bait to lure out the unicorn. And Blix shoots a poison dart into one of the unicorns when Lily touches it. And then ends up cutting the horn off and bringing it back to darkness. The other unicorn is still out and about, but they can't, fetch that unicorn because only innocence lures it. So there's no way for the goblins to, you know, um, get that unicorn at this point. So then um, Jack gets mad at Lily for having, uh, you know, touched the unicorns because they are sacred and you're not supposed to do that. And Lily's just um, trying to distract him and, and oh, I'm sorry here this can be our wedding ring this ring that's on my finger go catch you know if whoever you know whoever finds this ring i will marry and so jack runs after it and of course it happens to fall off a cliff into some water <laughs> so jack dives in and then because at that particular moment the unicorn horn is being removed when he comes up for air the whole lake is frozen over. There is snow. Like, there's ice encasing, and he has to break through the ice to get out. He doesn't know what the hell's going on. He doesn't know that the goblins have, um, you know, taken one of the alicorns. And Lily, for some reason, freaks out and runs away and just, you know, goes, I don't know where. I guess because there's snow. And suddenly she's like, forget Jack. i got to go home, you know, <laughs> when she leaves. um, So they get split up. Jack ends up meeting the Fae, uh, Gump, who is a forest elf that rules over the Fae, and then his friends. And meanwhile, Lily runs back to the peasant lady Nell's house and ends up seeing the goblins. The goblins (coughs) have the alicorn, and Blix is running around using it to just do whatever they want. And she, Lily, ends up hearing you know, all about, okay, well, we're, they're taking this horn to darkness and they need to kill the other unicorn. Crap. And so she runs back into the forest uh, and goes to try to find the unicorn and try to warn somebody, like, see if she what she can do to try to fix this situation because, you know, obviously, um, everything trapped in a world of ice and darkness is not good. And... When she gets back to the unicorn, um, the Fae have set up a guard in the form of a dwarf named Brown Tom, who is just there guarding the unicorn while Jack and Gump and the others are, you know, like, okay, we've got to get weapons and we have to go get this unicorn horn back. Um, and, you know, the goblins show up right about then. Brown Tom fights with them and it's crazy because he, all he has is a frying pan and like the goblins are shooting all of these arrows and stuff and Brown Tom is just like a ninja flying around smacking all of them away with this this frying pan and it's just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But the goblins overrun him and end up capturing both the, the mayor as well as Lily, I think. Did they capture Lily? Yes they yeah, did. They captured did, did, yeah, they yes. captured Lily it, at
1: that point. Yes. It's made it's really unclear because I because when I realized that she had been captured, I was like, "Oh, they captured her too." That that was unclear. Uh I do just want to take what a, a a quick step back uh sure. to the uh blix uh uh, goblin campfire scene because it has my oh, single favorite um single, single favorite use of necromancy on film ever, which yeah. is to <laughs> have a mummy awaken, grab a mouthy goblin, and then just fall into a bottomless Hit. pit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really great. It's really great. It, it, I... it that made me incredibly happy. I was like, yeah, you know what? If I could just casually raise the dead, I'd probably. Like have a zombie walk into a manhole while holding someone. That seems <laughs> that that's on brand. All right, all right. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind if I ever need to write something funny involving necromancy. It's a yeah.
0: It's, it's also it's a good, really uh, good and that
2: whole yeah the whole scene between um like at of the goblins with the alicorn before they get back to darkness is really there to kind of showcase whoever has the unicorn horn has power but also darkness has more power than somebody with the alicorn who is not darkness so right. um because darkness shows up and talks to them and like basically just smacks smacks them all down and it's just like you know completely disregarding the fact that they, they were thinking about you know usurping power and, and taking over and, like, killing darkness. That's what they were talking about at, at during that bonfire scene. And then he just doesn't even, you know, doesn't even recognize it and go, you betrayer. Like, he, he knows. He knows they're goblins. That's what they're going to do, you know? So.
1: Um, I, I think we... we... We You're need to talk <laughs> about Jack's armor.
2: It's made out of bottle caps by the way
1: it's It's also like that oversized jersey that you sleep in
2: <laughs> yes, it is <laughs> well that's that's partially to show that Jack is really not the kind of champion who should be wearing armor in the first place. Like, throughout the movie, um, he's got the armor, he's got the sword and the shield, and he doesn't know what he's doing with it, and like, 90% of the time, he doesn't even use his sword. Um, he just kind of jumps around and kicks and punches stuff, because he doesn't know how to use any of that stuff. And like, the shield is basically used as a mirror, and that's like, all he ever does with it. Um, And then the the When they go, when they're going towards Darkness's castle and they go through the swamp and they come across Meg Mucklebones, which we definitely need to talk about in great detail. There's a very, very long scene in the director's cut where uh, Meg Mucklebones has all of this characterization. There's a whole discourse between her and Jack. And Jack, when he's trying to kill her, struggles with his sword and can't get it out of his sheath before he finally, eventually pulls it out and then kills her. But he's also lying his butt off to her the entire time, telling her, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so, all this other stuff, to just, like, appeal to her vanity, which she buys into. And, you know, that's how she, he he catches her off guard in order to kill her. And none of that really comes out in the u.s theatrical version unfortunately and it's a lot of great acting um but he he can't even pull out his sword (laughs) so it's funny
1: uh and 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 for you you star trek fans out there uh meg mucklebones was played by one robert picardo uh yes (laughs) uh which is great because Robert Picardo is one of my favorite character actors of all time. So yes. um yes. it's always good to see him getting work, even if it was like thirty years ago. Almost thirty years ago. Um
2: well, yeah, the Meg Mucklebones like okay, the makeup effects in this movie are fantastic all across the board. Um Meg Mucklebones and Darkness in particular are just so well done um just they're everything about them and Meg Mucklebones was probably one of the most memorable scenes for me uh watching it as a kid because uh she's such a scary character and she's so well animated and you again the director's cut boy you get so much more of um Robert Picardo just doing his thing and he's just so good as that character and so expressive.
1: Yeah, I was actually trying to I I was having a hard time uh determining whether it was um uh, with her, with her, with the acting going on with the face, whether that was all prosthetic work or if there was some like animatronics in there at some, uh, it's uh, augmenting like character performance. It's 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 it's, it's a legitimately fantastic. All of, once again, all of the makeup effects, and I think all of the set design and set direction yeah. is really on point um, for this film. Uh, I will say that because the theatrical cut is so chopped up, I had a really hard time understanding um, a lot of the space that scenes took uh, place in near the end of the moving movie because it it there was very little connective tissue give me an idea of the layout of this of of the of the place at the end, uh, but I. I feel like maybe that was uh is uh, is a uh, theatrical cut issue, but yeah, everything about the look at, of this movie is is killer. It is it is nailing that high fantasy aesthetic. Like it is it it it's a movie that was made to so somebody could paint a scene from it on on their van. Um, <laughs> <I think.
2: laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing about it is that, especially in Hell and other areas like that, there's definitely so much layering of stuff everywhere, and there's so many different kinds of art styles and things just kind of portrayed everywhere that it gives everything. And then um, even Nell's Cottage, there's so much stuff in there that it gives it a really lived-in feeling, and it makes it feel like instead of just being a set serving this single story, that it has a history behind it. Mm. And that there are more stories that happen before, and there will be more stories afterward, yes so so Dave, um, what do you think about Meg Mucklebox?
0: It's yeah, it's probably my favorite one of the favorite performances, and particularly um due to watching the directors cut, how much longer it goes, but it's in service of the character uh again, we've just traditionally on the podcast, um, always had high praise for any sort of um, practical effects. Uh, and that, in this case, um, it carries a lot of the movie and a lot of the characterization. The actors do phenomenal jobs acting through all of those um, prosthetics because th- these are just prosthetic applications. There, there's no um, animatronics involved. That was both on both case of um, Robert Ricardo and Tim Curry. That's them working through all of that um, prosthetic yeah. that that it's articulated, uh, but uh, in like in particular for Tim Curry, he was um, very upset that the the last bit of him showing was his eyes, and then they put in full um, scleral contacts in, so he was like, "I'm completely covered up." <laughs>
2: Well, his makeup took five and a half hours to put on. And and when he was done with filming for the day, he had to soak in a bath of spirit gum for an hour to get everything off. And it got so claustrophobic that at one point he lost patience trying to take it off and ended up tearing the prosthetics off and tearing his skin with it. And then while he was healing, they had to shoot around him and do other stuff because he was, you know, like so freaked out by having to put all that makeup on, which I can imagine would be hard. But yeah, every part of his face, and um, I don't know about Meg Mucklebones, but I assume it to be the same, Uh, has like a different piece of prosthetic, and that's why it's so fully articulated, is because it's all separate pieces yeah. Um, being applied to his face. And so Meg Mucklebones is probably the very same.
0: Yeah, and I think in addition, um, uh, particularly for Robert Ricardo, that, that was also a a tough shoot um simply because all of the um the latex and everything just absorbs water so they they yeah. kept having to dunk him to do the scenes and everyone was so impressed that he's able to just he's underwater there's no breathing apparatus and he has to pop up and then do his performance and deliver his lines and he's just like sodden down with all that water and it's just sloughing off slowly so that that added heavy. bit is yeah, yeah. it's it's. I think the costume's heavy anyway, and then now you've just like basically wrapped yourself in sponges. Yeah. So just just that performance angle is really good. Um, I have pulled. I've pulled up some stuff for Mega Mucklebones, as a matter of fact.
2: Oh, good, because I I definitely want to talk about all the critters in this film because boy, there's a lot to go on, and and definitely the character Blunder will have to put a pin in that. So tell us yes. about Meg Mucklebones. So
0: Meg Mucklebones is is a it's a almost a one-to-one um transfer of the the Jenny Green Teeth is the the original or I guess one of the original inspirations in, in particular because of this um this this one uh has other it's a river hag but has other um incarnations in in other areas, so in in English folklore, this would be uh, Jenny Green Teeth, and then um, or a grindylow But she's she basically lives under um, duckweed um, in ponds, and I think that they use that uh, in the creation of the the costume because her body in this is it's more like a tuber. She yeah, it's it's a stalk, and then she's the kind of the pawn, like a living pawn scum.
2: Yeah, and they have they don't have um, that kind of stuff. They have like seaweed or something, which doesn't make sense in a swamp. But then again, fantasy, whatever.
0: It just looked cool, (laughs) probably. Like this is what we got that that looks really good. Um, But I pulled up a uh, it's a poem. This is actually uh, by a New Zealand. Um, scholar uh, Joel Hayward this is a poem from uh, 2003 um, as I pull it up because it went somewhere else <laughs> is what happens sometimes
1: I like to imagine uh, be- that that swamp doesn't get in a lot of like foot traffic and that Meg's just like sitting in some duckweed with a duck call just like <laughs> <laughs> desperately trying to lure ducks and, over to her
0: yeah and or just people she doesn't like fairies
2: yeah foul tasting fairy. yeah is
0: my favorite line good. of the entire film i think <laughs> because she's just so well, upset
2: <laughs> there are so many good lines yeah. in this movie though but the presentation of that line is pretty great
0: so here is the the poem from this collection uh, this is titled welsh maiden I know you, Jenny. Your beauty betrays you. What other woman has hair of fine-spun gold thread and long-lashed eyes of sapphire perfection? Visible through white silk, your breasts and hips lure me toward golden freckled alabaster arms. I've known your name all of my life. Now I meet you, smiling shyly as you bathe. You'll not get me, water spirit. They say you wait in wind-wild streams and lonely pools for weaker souls than I to surrender to your enchantment. You beckon lovers in to greet your body, to love you. They say you coil weeds around hopeful lovers' ankles and pull them down, white-cold, into black depths. You show their drowning eyes the hideous crone you really are, Jenny Green Teeth. But I see no crone, only youthful perfection, radiant in high sun's glory. Oh, Jenny, your beauty and smile draw me. Will you take me? Love me? Drown me? Let us speak in whispers. Touch our fingers. Lips. I cannot believe what they say. I cannot. I do not. The water. So cold. So this plays into, I think, it's that idea of projected um, vanity and beauty. And then they've taken the character and made it so, at least in the director's cut, um, she she believes in that and i think that that's what that belief um is what fuels everything so that belief in in the magic or in in anything strong enough can be made reality
2: the the thing that's interesting to me is okay the director's cut plays on themes of every character having good and bad uh Things about them, every single one of them, but also into, you know, basically the seven deadly sins. And, you know, you've got greed with Lily, and you've got lust with Jack. And Meg Mucklebones is the vanity character. So the interesting thing is that she does not look to anybody else, nor to the viewer of the movie to be some kind of attractive person. So, like, when she's looking at herself in the reflection on Jack's shield, uh, it's kind of like, you know, all that's reflected back, it's not a beautiful thing reflected back, it's just the same Meg Mucklebones, you know, like, crazy looking swamp hag. So, um, I think that's actually a really interesting thing, uh, interesting decision to have made, given that kind of a source material, um, to have the only person seeing that beautiful version is herself. Like, that plays really well into the idea of the sin of vanity, uh, especially since that also is the reason why uh, she dies, at least in the director's cut version, that deals with all of those things. So that's that's pretty awesome, actually.
1: Um, it is... I, there's also another aspect of that, which is um, I, I think that... Uh, there was a decision made that the, the temptation of Jack with beauty would, would be, uh, would reoccur, uh, too quickly within the span of the movie, at least in, in the theatrical cut, because we have the, um, the fairy, whose name? Una. 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 Yeah. We have that, we have that kind of same, not exact thing. Um, but thematically similar, if Meg was actually able to project herself as like a beautiful temptation, it'd just be re- i feel like it would be recursive to to like um uh in in too close a proximity to one another because yeah. that 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 happens almost immediately after
2: yeah that's true that's a very good point as well, so Um, The thing about Una, all right, uh, there is not very much more about her in the director's cut, but um, once all of the heroes are in the dungeon, entrapped, and Jack says, Una can go get the key, and, you know, it's revealed that Una has a human form um, and is not just a tiny little bug-sized sprite, uh, she says, okay, well, I will go get the key only if you kiss me. And, you know, Jack, like, they cut out some of this scene, too. Uh, the director's cut. Jack is lying his butt off even more to her, um, just like he did with Meg Mucklebones, where he's just, like, sweet-talking her left and right. They they cut most of that out, um, again, because they're trying to make Jack not look like a lying, terrible man. Um, and it's that it's funny, because the fact that he tells her no rings really hollow to me in the director's cut because he's so bad in all these other ways and he doesn't even really love Lily he's just like lusting after Lily so like you know he doesn't really like love her love her yet so um it's it's like why wouldn't he just give her a kiss i mean it wouldn't it wouldn't be a thing like it makes more sense in the theatrical version where he really does love Lily um than it does in the director's cut but anyway um that aside Una does eventually go get the key, even though Jack says, "No, I'm not going to kiss you even you know even after she uses fairy glamour to look like Lily um she lets all of the fay out, and then in the director's cut, she slams the door on Jack and says, You know basically all these spiteful, hateful things in like this really horrible like hurt, angry way, like I should just leave you in there to rot you know your whatever like just all this stuff about how horrible he is and you know stuff about him being like a, a you know, basically a dumb human, mm-hmm. and and like eventually does let him out, but you know basically exerts her power over him, and you know makes it clear that she is like definitely hates his guts.
0: She, she so. didn't even let him out. She walked away. One of the other, one of the oh, others had it? to. Let, yeah. Oh, okay. Made it even better. Okay.
2: Yeah, I, that that's that's cool.
1: I wonder if if the reason that this uh that sequence doesn't work in the director's cut is because even though they were trying to put forth the idea that Jack's character is changing and evolving and actually growing to love Lily, therefore, just because una makes herself look like Lily, it's not enough. I wonder if that is a failure of that like character progression. Uh, yeah told to the it, audience
2: it feels like it to me because there's not enough there's not enough uh interaction or or like jack moments before that where he's like reflecting on lily or or anything to make you think that he's got any kind of a change going on other than Lily is gone you know like Lily is gone now I love her like i that's yeah. not enough for me to go on, you know so
1: yeah, it feels so, like so there think... needed to be like two or three more scenes of her, him, yeah. like c- coming to that realization before it's like, here, let me just look like what you want. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah.
1: And yeah. this mean... is the temptation, and suddenly he, he, he truly loves her.
2: Yeah. So, Dave, what do you think? Yeah. About so, that?
0: so part of that there. Um... Having to read a little bit further into the director's cut and then some of the excise scenes, um, what I think is happening there with Jack is that it's fear. He's a, he's afraid of her when she's showing the fairy glamour, uh, and it's not it's not just Jack. The uh, Gump and everyone else is like their their reactions to her is also like it's a it's a tie between fear and amazement. They're, they're going very, very magic, and they're like, they being Fae themselves are still uh, perturbed by that. And then if we bounce back all the way to the beginning where Gump first meets Jack, uh, the, the very important part that we talked a little bit about is that upon meeting uh, and Gump realizing what jack basically has done um in leading Lily to the unicorns uh is that puts him in a position puts jack in a position where he's basically risking risking his life um any any meeting with the fae is already kind of dubious in the first place uh they're they're capricious and gump is is fully intent on just killing jack
2: In the director's cut. In the director's cut. They they overhauled it so much, and it's to the detriment of Gump as a character, because he's pretty much like a sidekick or like a guide character, but like in that scene in the the theatrical release, uh, Gump says, hey, Jack, what happened? And Jack's like, I took Lily to see the unicorns. And Gump goes, oh my God. And then Jack says, it was for love. And then Gump says, oh, let's drink. And that's like the end of the scene. Whereas in the director's cut, um, he gets really angry. And like, before he even asks Jack anything, he shows up and he's got that fiddle in his hand and he's like, so I'm going to ask you a riddle. And Jack's like, okay, well, what if I can't solve it? And he's like, well, uh, if you can't, if you can solve it, I'll help you. And if you can't solve it, I'm going to kill you! And that's, like, the end of it. Like, And then, like, Jack um, ends up getting the riddle right, and then Gump flips out, smashes his fiddle on the ground like a rock star on stage at the end of the concert... And, like, starts, throws himself on the ground and starts flicking his arms and legs every which way and throwing this gigantic, crazy tantrum. He's got the psycho eyes the whole time, which, like, it's sad that you never get to see those, Leonard, because they are, boy, are they are something else. And then when Jack says that he's, you know, uh, did it, you know, he, he took Lily to go see the unicorns, Gump Gump is a, goes unhinged, I mean... It, he's he's unhinged, and, like, he only ends up, like, calming down, uh, jeez, is it, is it because, like, what was the reason for it, uh, Dave?
0: Only on because this? Jack answered the riddle, which he was also mad is about. Is that it? Yeah.
2: Oh, is that he, it? Okay, answered, I, I got the he order the riddle then. Okay. Uh,
0: after, okay, the riddle is why. Yeah. Okay. So he answers the riddle, and then he's upset because he thinks one of the other fairies, like, slipped him the answer. Because there's a whole troop of brownies and pixies and fairies, um, in this they're having a they, they eventually have like a big like dance party, and what that is, uh, originally when so when he when Gump pulls up and he has the fiddle and he's and he's mad at him and he's like I'm gonna play your death song, that literally would have just made Jack dance to death, and so I've again uh, I pulled up two so these are shorter um, excerpts, these are actually Scandinavian, but they, they all fit together. Um, bookmark. Here we go. So, this is, this is a a short entry, um, this is entitled, They Had to Keep Dancing. When I was young, I heard about a fiddler named Pell, who learned to play from Anak, and Anak is a, um, a specific type of fairy, uh, damn, but it was easy for him. Once he was playing at a dance on a farm, later that night, all the folks became so crazy from his playing that each and every one of them, young and old, had to get up and dance, whether they wanted to or not. And in the end, even the furniture in the house began dancing. That's what really happened. There was no end to the dancing until they took Pell's fiddle and cut the strings. If they had not done this, they would have danced, them- danced themselves to death. And then there is a, a a fun little aside here by the authors, I guess, or the translators. The musical impulse was often considered demonic and therefore dangerous. The fiddler had to play, and those who listened had to dance, whether they chose to or not. In, in many legends it is a fact not the water sprite, but the devil who instructs the fiddler or plays himself. In some variants of the legends, the dancers dance themselves to death, leaving only their skulls behind. And then there's a small, uh, the compulsion to dance may have been an elaborate, uh, an elaboration of the dance epidemic first documented in Kolbic, Germany in the 11th century. Um, uh, They're just saying there's a dance craze that was going on and people got hurt probably doing it. Um,
2: I love that it's called a dance epidemic, but continue.
0: Um,
1: and, 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 um, might, might I add, Dave, that, um, an incident in 1993 involving the Sanderson sisters also required people to dance themselves to death.
0: (laughs) Well, there we go. Um, the other one is, he gave a nod off bone to the water sprite. Once there was a man who wanted to learn to play the fiddle from a knock. One should always offer a water sprite something in return, but the man just threw a bone into the river without anything on it. Then the nut got angry and shouted, You'll learn to tune, but you'll never learn to play. So there's just more between the, um, the, the presence of a fiddle. Uh, when I looked into the, the, the Celtic legends and some of the, the ones in the, the Isles, generally the Fae wouldn't be using a fiddle, they would be using a harp. So that would be one small difference. But in this case, he used a fiddle, and I found the, some appropriate details for that.
2: Well, the, the thing that I like a lot about the director's cut version of Gump is the fact that the fear and the respect that all of the Fae give him, and uh, like Tom, Brown Tom and Screwball and Una and how everybody just like obeys Gump, uh, it doesn't seem as, as well-founded in the theatrical version, but, like, boy, when you get, like, a real sense of gump and, and you know, how angry he is and how scary he is and the fact that he can do something, like, make Jack dance to death or whatever, um, gives him a lot more agency and gives him a lot more power. Um, and so it makes him far more than just, like, a sidekick guide character like how he is in the, the theatrical release. So
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: From from the descri- uh from the description of uh, Gump's characterization uh in the director's cut, um uh I instantly got flashes of like a rumpled still esque character, mm-hmm. especially yeah. with the with the tantrum. And that's um that's something else that I wanted to bring up about it, which is is Like, all of the clear and obvious influences that this movie pulls from. Um, And I'm, you know, I think I'm going to ultimately go back and try to watch the uh, director's cut. But one of the things um, that I, not to the film's detriment, but I found really um, kind of distracting because it was so obvious was the, like... um, the obvious like analogs to like Adam and Eve, there's also the Hades and Persephone aspect, especially with the endless winter and uh like i i i I wish that they were just like remixed just a little more, so it wasn't so obvious because I do actually kind of like all of that the these desperate kind of like. Legend and theology elements kind of mis- mixing and coalescing in this world. I just wish that they were mixed in a little better, at least well, for me.
2: Uh, yeah, um the Adam and Eve, you know stuff definitely is really obvious. Um, it's different with the director's cut entirely and not not nearly so one to one. Mm -hmm. because you know again those characters are shown to be so flawed and they are in a very notably unequal relationship jack is definitely being played by lily in the beginning of this movie uh and is definitely you know lorded over by this princess who's just doing whatever she wants to which even has implications and commentary about class and stuff like that so there's a lot of, of um subtle differences that that change how that feels. It definitely is more Adam and Eve straight cut uh, and definitely more Persephone feeling um, in the theatrical release because in the director's cut, all of those extended scenes with darkness show Lily being, you know, um, a little bit more like she in in the theatrical release she is just like no no and she's just crying and like she just you know is completely not having it and that's definitely more Persephone um you know being taken away by Hades in the director's cut it's not so much that like she's actually interacting with him and sort of kind of going back and forth and maybe she is and maybe she isn't like it's it doesn't have the same feeling and it's not as clear cut. So, like, I think you would definitely benefit from seeing the director's cut version. Uh, you would probably enjoy that better because it's not, it, it has more nuance to it to the point that things like those references uh, to Persephone and Hades and Adam and Eve are not so, uh, you know, again, one to one, just right up in your grill, you know.
1: Yep. Sorry, BB just literally climbed. Up on me while you're finishing <laughs> that up.
2: That's okay. Not a toy.
1: Uh, I, I am always a toy. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I will. I will be a a toy forever. And, uh, yes, but but back to the film.
0: <laughs> okay, so we'll roll back to the part where um they're they in the they're not really they're they're not they are distinctly not the dungeon. It is just cells for. Things that are going to be turned into food, um but this is where they meet Blunder.
2: Ah, yes, yes. The character that I never knew the name of until I watched the director's cut and heard it like sixty times, where it wasn't—it was mentioned once in the theatrical release and like it never registered to me before.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it does show up in this, like when they do the subtitles, and so anytime he's speaking, it's Blunder. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So it gives you that because it's post-added um subtitling. But uh, in, yeah, in in film he's not referred to uh until later or very early on in in an alternate opening that they did not use um for the film. But Blunder is a um he's a he's a goblin or so you're made to think, but we find out that in this scene in particular that um he's actually a fairy um or fae being masquerading as a goblin to go on a great adventure.
2: Yeah, in the deleted scene that was not used, there was an alternate ending for this um where it was just an extended scene with the goblins and Blunder and Blix and Pox and another unnamed goblin go and they're hunting around in the forest and they come across a unicorn's hair and bring that hair back to darkness. And along the way, Blix kills the unnamed goblin so that uh, they don't have to split the plunder four ways. It'll only be three. And when they go to take this hair back to darkness, darkness ends up turning Blunder's hand into a goblin hand. And so, like for the rest of the movie, he's got this goblin hand. And in when I watched the theatrical release the 50 million times that I had... I always thought he was just wearing like a glove or something. I didn't know that it was actually a goblin hand. But as it, as you see him, when you first see him take off his helmet and you see his face, he has a normal skin tone. As the movie progresses from there, his skin starts getting progressively greener and greener and greener. And in the director's cut, right before the light bursts through, Blunder is sitting there staring at his goblin hand really thoughtfully and... You know, like, it's, it's really obvious that he's thinking about, you know, man, it's not very much longer until I turn into a goblin. Um, but, like, they cut that scene so short in the U.S. theatrical release that that never comes across or never came across to me at any rate. Um, the only reason that we know that he's turning into a goblin uh, is because when Gump and Jack first meet, Gump says something to Jack about if your heart turns cold enough, you'll start turning into a gob, you know, being a goblin. So that sets you up for understanding what's happening with Blunder, but none of that is in the U.S. theatrical release, so, like, you just think it's weird that maybe he's turning green. I I don't know why, you know? But, um, so... And he's also not in the ending scene where all the Fae are in the forest waving at Jack and Lily, um, and that's Probably because he is a goblin now and he's off with the goblins somewhere.
1: Oh, I just read that as he totally got nuked by that light blast when the, <laughs> that door... <laughs> and he
2: died, and he died, at yeah. that's the end of it. And like, that was it. He
0: does get bowled over okay. pretty hard when the light hits him in the door. Well,
2: <laughs> well, I mean, like, the light doesn't affect the goblins. Like, the goblins were out during the day hunting the unicorns, Oh, yeah, so, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, I don't think that that, yeah, that would have killed him.
1: Yeah, Um I, 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 so here's the thing about Blunder that, that confuses me, is, is Blunder literally the goblin that the mummy, like, jumps into the pit with? Okay, so I just wanted to make sure, because, like, I just assumed that he died, but I keep forgetting that, like, Darkness's realm is subterranean, so I guess the mummy just jumped down into a tube to go back <laughs> to the tree um yes so, okay cool because i was just like i was just like is that the same character or yes. is this that just like the goblin like standard issue goblin like armor i'm like i i'm <laughs> unclear um i'm so glad that that got cleared up for me because i was actually very confused by it, <laughs>
2: when, it <laughs> when
1: it happened yeah, and
0: was like, wait, what? No.
2: Yeah. And yeah. Well,
0: uh, yeah. Let's say there's some al- there's some other tie-ins at that original opening. It it changes things. <coughs> so we we lose the other goblin, but in doing so, it's altering set pieces. Um, the passage that Jack and Gump and everyone uses to get down, um, into uh, underneath the. Uh, um, ca- castle the, the great tree uh is the same one that it's it's i guess the one uh entrance and exit so the goblins are also using that and when they're doing so and um blix uh cuts loose their their other extra party member um it's using that same vine that trap vine um that they that the the heroes used and then a- accidentally like triggered the trap and fell down.
2: Yep, yep. And so you get to see that, and you go, "Oh, Blix cut the end off of that. No wonder it's frayed." When you see it later, and Screwball's tugging on it to see if it'll hold his weight. Oh, you know. And um, it's interesting because Blix at that point um, okay, so th- it's it's uh a rock jutting out over a chasm and there is a vine there and Blix and the other goblins are on the other side of this chasm. And they are talking to Blix is talking to that one unnamed goblin that gets killed and says, Oh, it's okay. It's easy. It's easy. Just swing across because um, Blix knows that if you pull on that vine, it's going to knock that rock out from underneath you. And when the goblin is grabbing for it, uh, it's, the goblin is too light to actually um, trigger the trap, so Blix just cuts the cord and, and knocks him off into the darkness below and it, presumably it gets eaten because you never see that goblin again. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so Blunder is interesting to me because uh, first off, even though he's got that goblin hand, all of the Fey welcome him with open arms and call him brother. And so it has this, it, it has a suggestion in it of the relationship between the Fae and the goblins, you know, and like how, you know, those interactions would be. Um, and even earlier in the movie, when Brown Tom is fighting the goblins, he doesn't, you know, he's just like, oh, you're looking for a fight, then I'm, I'll am i be the one to do it, you know, and is not treating them like, oh, terrible goblins or anything like that. You know, it's just like, oh, it, it's people. You know, um, and I like that because it it kind of gives more dimension to the world and to the dynamics of the fairy realm in general. Um, And let it be known, too, Blix is the one that has the happiest ending because Blix gets a princedom. And gets away and like vanishes after after having dropped off the unicorn horn at, with darkness because that's like the end of Blix and the other goblins' part, you know. And so, uh, Blix and Pox presumably just go off and have their happy princedom somewhere, um, in, in and, their, in their and, a world like, of trash, kind of of the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that's the end of that, like they, they got theirs. I would have really loved to see a fight between Gump and Blix, though, because that would have been really badass. Because Blix, as a goblin, is great, Uh, very capable, able to use a longbow, poison darts, a sword, tracks down the unicorns um, multiple times, you know, uh, is cunning, is intelligent you know, uh, a, a very different from the way the goblins are usually presented these days, uh, as like trash, trash mob, trash mobs, you know, in any given RPG, uh, or, you know, fantasy book or anything. I like the, that these goblins are more capable and, you know, uh, given, I guess, like, treated with more respect, I guess. <laughs> like, I, I'm just like, these, these goblins are badass, and Blix is just awesome, and I actually really, really like that character. So, I know I jumped from Blunder over to Blix, but um, what do you guys think about Blunder and or Blix?
0: I enjoyed that there's a, a, What this movie does, and we've pointed out a little bit, is it gives you a sense of this larger world. And that Blunder went off on some adventure and that adventure decided to be, like, pretend to be a goblin for some reason. Like, that, that to, for that to be the thing that he wanted to go do is, uh, it just gives you a, a better sense of these characters having far more agency. They're not, they're not, um, just sidekicks. They're not just, uh... <coughs> second fiddles to like Jack's character. Uh and that that's a they're given their parts to do and they're able to accomplish them. That's a, played down a little bit in the theatrical version. Um in in the director's cut everyone has their talents, their skills, the things that they do, they carry their own weight. Um sure they're a little goofy but that's just kind of like part of this fairy tale feeling that it's that it's kind of playing with and one thing i was wondering when watching the alternate um opening is is i was thinking that the uh they they did give the other goblin a name but i I don't remember what it was because it was mentioned once but um I was thinking just because of the armor and the way that they're um, Blunder specifically hiding himself that that other goblin might not have also been another fairy, um, and then was just like sniffed out and then blunders like ooh that could have been me like I I I'm successfully uh-uh. still uh, sneaking.
2: No, that that fourth goblin had an animal head. Yeah, yeah, didn't have it covered so. So I don't believe that to be the case. That's not how I read it. But, you know, who knows? But that was that was the deleted scene. Nobody got to yeah. see, so. <laughs> but what do you think about Blix?
0: And then with with Blix, uh, the character had I think out of all of the other goblins has the most, well, out of most of the characters, really has the most sense of, like, self and self-preservation. Um... Blix definitely knows kind of when to. Uh, she gets a sense of power from having the horn, but knows that it's kind of limited, and knows that darkness is, regardless of the power this is giving, uh, isn't enough because she she specifically like uh, during the campfire scene when darkness his avatar kind of reappears, Blix chucks the horn, <laughs> like not going to be holding it at that particular yeah. moment. Uh, and makes yep, a face, yep. going "Whoops!" Uh, hope, hope he didn't hear me planning to overthrow him. And that's when Blunder picks it up and is doing his his blunder, saying that we have this now. We'll not we'll a be toy, beast, and we'll be the rulers. And not then a toy. gets chucked into the darkness of the pit.
2: <laughs> and I love Blix's line there because, um, like, after Blunder goes into the pit, Blix is like, "Wow." pardon, pardon, you know, the goblins tend to be outspoken and I tend to encourage their initiative and just like has this sensible response and like trying to cover, cover their ass, you know, yeah. <laughs> for having, having, you know, the underling blunder pop off like that. So I, I think that was really a, a good, a good expression of um a little bit more of, of Blix's uh, understanding of the order of things you know <laughs> like understanding uh where they rank and um that obviously this is not the time to talk about uh you know usurping power or anything like that like uh drop that now <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i was i was actually very very impressed with blix's um uh, superior middle manager response to darkness yes. in that in that scene not a toy <laughs>
2: <laughs> That that not a toy could totally be about like the unicorn horn at that point like that's darkness talking to Blix and the other goblins right. like drop it yep. drop it <laughs> <laughs> So Leonard what are what are your thoughts about uh Blunder and Pox and Blix and so on the goblins
1: uh, I don't think that Blunder gets a uh, gets particularly that much characterization um no. in the theatrical cut. I mean, nope. once again, I couldn't even tell that th- those were the same character. I just yeah. assumed that it might have been two different goblins in the same armor. Um and yeah, he doesn't he doesn't really he just kind of ends up helping out set up the 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 mirrors and then and then gets and then gets nuked at the end. And I'm just like, oh, oh, okay. Well, I'm sure you're glad that they rescued you out of that pie after, after <laughs> that. Uh, Blitz is great. He's a, he's a, he's a, uh, he's a Warhammer goblin, like a high ranking yeah. Warhammer goblin, like 100%. Uh-huh. Um, and is, is like, probably is shown to have the, it gets out of out of all of the characters, like secondary characters in the theatrical cut, probably gets the most care like solid characterization out yeah. of out of all of the secondary characters. Which is a shame because he just ends up disappearing out of the movie after after he does his thing. So it's it's kind of a waste. And I'm a little sad, but yeah, no, he's great. They're. they're,
2: Yeah, I. uh, One one fun thing is that Blix's prosthetics uh, are supposed to look like Keith Richards. So if Blix looks really familiar to you for some reason, it's probably because it's supposed to look like Keith Richards.
1: (laughs) He does look like Keith. Well, current current day Keith Richards. I know audience. Don't <laughs> stop booing right now. It was easy. <laughs> it was too easy. I would have been I would have been shot out of the cannon if I if I didn't.
2: The werewolf cannon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <Yes>. oh man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um should we move on to the uh, the seduction of Lily? Oh, all, yeah, all, that's, that's all, good... all five minutes of it <laughs> okay in the so um cut. because be,
2: because dave and i saw the director's cut i'm curious to hear your your input on this leonard about j- having just seen the theatrical release before we talk about the director's cut
1: yeah it's so like <clears throat> darkness I uh, like the the prosthetics his perform- Tim Curry's perform- performance is every is fantastic. I don't understand like the mechanics of like how Darkness's realm works. Like he invokes uh Mother Night, is it Mother Midnight or Mother Night earlier in the film? Yes. Uh and then he st- Speaks to something that he refers to as father, and I'm like, is it the fireplace? Is it the empty <laughs> chair? I was because I'm like, I'm like, well, listen, that fireplace is is clearly sucking up that like evil gas, so maybe it's breathing that, and maybe that's what he's talking to. Like, I don't understand the minutia around like Darkness's realm. So when the chair or and or fireplace is just like, yeah, just seduce her just trick her see see your victory will be complete when you not only banish light but you like seduce innocence and i'm like is that like necessary for for (laughs) his conquest is that like gravy as well i i i was confused by that and then like he tries to be charming for like five minutes and then like totally gives up and i'm just like all right well and then and uh, well we'll get to the 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 quote heel turn but i was but that also felt like it came out of nowhere and i'm just like i i the the ending feels like the most chopped and and hardest to understand part of the film and i find that really frustrating but yeah that was my experience my experience was like i don't know how anything that you're trying to do works i don't know who you're talking to and you didn't try very hard to seduce this lady so i guess it's time to kill that unicorn
2: Well, so, um, yes, he refers to Mother Night, but that's only... I think that's only in the U.S. theatrical version. Um, Dave, you might want to correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, is that only... Cause, like, I he, think he, that's just in the, just in the theatrical, the theatrical version. version. Yeah, the theatrical version, he's like, Mother Night. <coughs> and it, that's how he starts the movie. That's the first line out of his mouth. But, like, I don't believe that even happened in the... Uh, director's cut there is definitely a father uh and you see it's glowing green eyes in like a scene in the director's cut but it's so weird because the voice of you know darkness's father is like a high-pitched child's voice which is really weird and i'm glad that they changed it in the theatrical version because, you know, uh Darkness's voice is so deep and, you know, resonant and rich and then you've got the <coughs> tinny, high voiced, you know, like sounding it's thing a, yeah. for his, his father. <laughs> That's maybe a, a chair. You think a the chair.
1: You've, yeah. You gotta got you gotta you gotta wine and dine their darkness. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well and and they also do, sir. <laughs> well, uh, the director's cut also spends more time with Darkness going, I don't even understand why I'm so... It's att- it's a different plotline entirely. It has nothing to do with his conquering anything. He is just vexed because he doesn't know why he's very smitten with Lily, but he 100% is attracted to her and doesn't know why he is. And he spends a lot more time trying to seduce her in the director's cut to the point that it's really awkward like he is awkward flat out awkward and it's very cute um so i don't know dave do you, what do you have to say about uh the that whole scene and like what what all is different i mean there's a lot of lily being different as well during that part yeah
0: during so during that part um tying in with how her character is slightly different in the director's cut she's Far more um, well, she, she's a, she's a little bit afraid. He's a he's a very large um, demon man, uh, and she has been ensorcelled slightly. But the the fear that she's like showing in the theatrical in the theatrical version is is it happens in the director's cut, but it's a little different. And she has just has far more agency um, because she's kind of a very selfish person and she's greedy. Uh, she, she's entertaining some of what he's saying, uh, and she's also standing up to him like quite a lot, which is, is, is what ends up making him frustrated, uh, is because she's not reciprocating, um, she's, she's not falling fully under whatever this, this, um, mesmerization spell is supposed to be, uh, she, she's not buying all the way into it, um, but because he's he kind of I don't think that he wants her to just be like ensorcelled like that that doesn't that doesn't mesh with his curiosity and we'll try to figure out why he's um feeling this way toward her and so when he does get upset um it's a combination of like he's upset at himself for not being able to like correct winner her it. yeah <laughs> because he's, he's trying really hard to go, It's it's like a five minute long scene maybe you know it's like three to five minutes it's much longer than it is in the, the theatrical release and there's just a lot more dialogue it's him trying really hard to make everything he has sound super cool um and trying to get her to sit on this It's it's his throne but it's weirdly bubbly and, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, you you missed that in the U.S. theatrical release, <laughs> yeah. but um, before we talk about the chair, I just want to insert really quickly. Um, Lily, in the director's cut, is playing Darkness the same way that she plays Jack yeah. in the director's cut. So, like, she is going back and forth and being coy and, like, you know, um, entertaining some of it, but then also saying, nope, just like she's been doing to Jack this entire damn time. So... She's just doing the lily. <laughs> so, uh, but the chair, yes, you can go ahead and proceed talking about the weird bubbly chair that we don't get to see the bubbly chair in the US version no. of it. Like, she looks at it, but you don't get to see, like, the, the seat of the chair <laughs> The surface, it,
0: it has, like, memory foam bubbles or something. It's super cushy. Um, maybe because <laughs> it, it's he's, alive. A, he's... It's alive. Yeah. It's doing something, and he wants her to, like, that's weird because he sits in it normally. It's, like, his chair... Uh, so I don't know, but, um, yeah, he's, he's super insistent, like, sit in the chair, sit in the chair. How about you want to sit in the chair now? And she just, she, she looks like she's like, this chair? She takes a look and sees that it's, like, pulsing, and she's like, I, yeah, I'll just stand.
2: Yeah, and the thing about it that I, the, the sense that I get, which, uh, I don't know, it's never really confirmed, is that, like, the chair is kind of a trap chair. Like, if you sit in it, it's gonna stick. (laughs) <laughs> You're not gonna be able to get up, you know. Yeah. If, you, if he so desires for it to be that way, that that's kind of how I read that. Or, but, or it'll you know, do yeah.
0: something, uh, and that yeah. and that's I think part of maybe what was excised out of the other 30 minutes of movie and the original screenplay because uh, Ridley Scott his um, screenplay was ac- it's more of a horror. Oh films.
2: yes, we haven't even begun to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, so
0: we'll we'll oh, circle yes. we'll circle back around to that. But, yeah, we'll um, circle back to that. I, I feel that the things that he originally wanted to do uh, are kind of hinted at with like this this particular moment, um, and for for Lily's character, her two sort of divergent arcs of what what she is in the theatrical and in the. Um, director's cut. They're kind of pinpointed a little bit more um slightly before this when she's about to when she's originally um entrapped by like the jewelry uh the the, the vanity table. Because she has very it's, it's, it's sort of the same reactions but the reaction she gives to the 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 jewelry and the the in in particular the facial expressions of her being like entranced with it and just really digging it um those are expressions that in the in the theatrical release she doesn't do but in the director's cut she's done this before like a couple times
2: yeah when she was in um Nell's house she had that selfish look right when she was helping herself to literally everything in Nell's house. And then she even steals some of the food from Nell and then takes it to the woods to Jack, gives it to Jack and says, I made that for you myself. Actually, I took it, but is it good? <laughs> and she just is, is like a complete, you know, piss ant the entire time. And she's made that greedy face several times. She makes that greedy face, when she is trying to convince Jack, because in, in the director's cut, Jack does not really want to take her to go see the unicorns, like, not, he's kind of cautious about it. He he wants to take her to see the unicorns because, you know, and he says, if it will please you, Lily, because he's really trying hard to win her over. And um, she makes that face right before she walks out to the unicorns and Actually, in the director's cut, one of the unicorns is like, you know, stampeding around her and stuff like that. And like, it looks like it's almost going to run her over um, and all this business. So, I mean, like Jack, Jack also gets a lot angrier at her in the director's cut version because, you know, what she did is wrong. And like, you know, he shouldn't be brushing it off the way he does in the um, U.S. release. So Lily's made that face a lot. You see it a lot um, before that part with the vanity table. Yeah. Also, she's a princess. So she's greedy, she's selfish, and she's a princess. And then she gets a table full of jewels. Of course, she's just going to... Like, another thing that they took away was there's a little bit of a scene. It's just a few seconds long where she's holding the jewelry up to her chest and, like, looking at how it would look on her and they cut that part out um in the US version because they didn't want it you know they they were trying to downplay her greed you know
0: yeah so. and more like it's 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 a trap versus yes her actually going like I probably would have come after this anyway even if it wasn't magical um yep and and another thing that she uh while we're on the subject briefly about lily is that she also has the the princess power of song and she she has her own sorceries and like sings the unicorns over to her and sings to Jack. There's some, they're very brief musical numbers. Um, and she's also learning like it goes on a little bit longer about her, um, being taught by Jack. So that's one of Jack's things is he can speak to animals. Um, and, and so she's learning from him, like the ways of the forest, but it always seems like she's, She's not being given these things. She's like taking them. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, so, oh uh, yes. Yeah, I was just going to say that the um, like yeah, the jewelry, the vanity sequence, like the entrapment sequence, always doesn't ring true to me for her character at in the in the theatrical version, just because she is painted as so pure and such a Mm goody-goody the entire time, that that it feels like disingenuous to suddenly bring in this kind of character trait, because she does, she is still mesmerized by them in the U.S. theatrical cut. It might not be the same greed face, but there is a, a lust for this material possession that seemingly comes out of nowhere for her character in the theatrical cut.
0: And I think part of that is to do to her her change in station so if she's just she's a lady that's still above a commoner those things represent something that she may not have otherwise been able to obtain. Right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in in the in the director's cut that's just more of the stuff that she should just is like owed to her is what it feels like because she makes comments of her, her father the king like doting on her like severely, and saying that she's a genius and all kinds of things and so she's just like, um, very it's not even it's like above it's like golden spoon she's very coddled uh, yeah. and and spoiled yeah. princess. Yep, yep,
2: for sure. So. You know, like, I I have to agree, and the thing is, the reason why that vanity scene worked for me in the U.S. theatrical release of it, though, is because the only time you really see that greed face is when she's holding up that, you know, the jewelry to her face, and you see her smile, that greed smile, on her face with the heavy lids as she's holding that necklace up in front, and it frames that face, and that's the first time that you see it like that. Now, in the director's cut, you've already seen it 50 million times and you know what that means, you know. But like in the, the U.S. version, you know, they've got the heavy breathing interposed at that point. Like, you know, she's, she's um, being ensorcelled and it's working is how I, you know, because look at that face. Oh, my God. Like that always struck me when I was young. Uh, And watching this movie, that part where she holds it up and then, you know, she's got that smile, it always was disturbing to me because it was the only time you see that. And, um, you know, that was my indicator when I was watching it as a small child that, you know, she's been, you know, bespelled by these things. It's a spell trap and she touched it and now she's all screwed up. Right, right, right.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yes, and then she gets to do her death dance because it's it's the it's the, the the death of her innocence with this fancy gown wearing uh creature
2: dress waltz thing. Yeah, the dress waltz is really evocative, but it's super underwhelming in the director's cut because the music doesn't hold up in that part at all. It's probably the weakest part of the musical score at that point in my opinion. Um and that might be because I'm so accustomed to the Tangerine Dream, which has such a strong feeling to it, that having something subtle at that point doesn't make sense, because it's a very important moment, like a big turning point.
1: And so. and, and it should also be, like, flashy, and the music should, <clears throat> excuse me, be sort of diegetic uh, as, as well, um, and... Uh, for for that scene, because that is, like, the final seduction,
0: really.
2: Yes. yes.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it would and have and helped s- for the scene. Um, there's the, the the statue of the... It's kind of like a little um, satyr. But if it had been playing an instrument, I think that that would have, like, sold it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But instead he just kind of dances a little. Yep.
2: Well... And I like, it. what's interesting is that in the U.S. release, they cut parts of it out, but then they added a little bit of a scene with Lily at that part where she's, you know, dancing around, and it's at the crescendo of the music, and she's bending down a little bit with her arms outstretched to the dancing dress character. And it has this, this, sort of pained look on her face, but also adoration and looking for approval. Like all these things are registering on on her face at that point, but it's so, so strong of a mixture of emotions at that particular moment. Um, that, you know, it just really sells it, especially when you've got that driving music at that point, you know, it sells what all has happened and that she's been ensorcelled so thoroughly for her to just, you know, change like that you know like that's a change in character just in the, those expressions right there and i don't recall the director's cut having quite the same you know like i i don't remember if that scene was quite that long of of her just looking at the dress dancing dress character uh or maybe it's because the music was a lot less driving at that point it just did not have the same significance
0: I think so, I think it was um, still as long but they they cut the shots a little differently um to where it's doing yeah. a little bit more back and forth um right at that end bit it wasn't doing that as much it just it was more of a gradual like okay now she's transformed uh it, whereas the theatrical one it was it it was a little bit more powerful not just because of the music but I think because of how they framed like the um the shots
2: yeah. Yeah. There's There was something different about the cinematography at that point that, you know, combined with the change in the music just did not sell it to me the same way in the director's cut as with the the U.S. theatrical. So, like, there are parts where I really think that the, the theatrical version in the U.S. Um, did a, a better job selling, you know, a particular element. Um uh, However, like the, the two versions are basically completely different movies, uh, as we've said before. And so I, just, I don't treat them as essentially the same thing, even, because they, they are just so drastically different in tone and theming. Um, but the original screenplay... Uh, in the original screenplay, Princess Lily was supposed to slowly transform into a clawed and fur-covered cat creature who is whipped and sexually seduced by the antagonist and supposedly was possibly going to even have a rape scene in it. Uh, there was, it was going to be graphic with violence and gore. Um, and like the hill of rock that Jack is climbing when he's going to stop darkness, you know, uh, was originally a bunch of rotting corpses in the screenplay and that, that changed to like rocks you know, in, um, you know, the version that we got, um, but like when the they were trying to get a studio to fund this, uh I forget who it was that was reading over the script. It was like the producer. Said, well, there's one thing. <laughs> yeah, the producer was like, There's okay, this is fantastic, but there's one thing I have to say. You can't have the villain screw the princess. <laughs> and so like they ended up changing it to instead of being like her turning into a an actual critter. Uh, her just looking, you know, pretty outlandish in her black goth garb, uh, instead. And then, of course, instead of being abused in every which way by the antagonist, taking this Beauty and the Beast angle, which I think actually is a lot better because it gives darkness a lot more of of character, um, like a, a multifaceted characterization, rather than just being here's big bad evil man, you know. Um, and I like the fact that darkness has some, um, you know, like good traits in there mixed in with all the the rest of it.
0: So. Yeah, and that 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 helps for his theming and the things that he's basically offering forward uh, t- toward the end of the film.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, but I do I do like the idea of a. Darker horror film version of this, all the same, even though I like the fact that Darkness has these, um, you know, different facets to his personality. Like, I like the idea of this being grittier and darker um, because that's kind of where my brain always took it in the first place because all of the goblins and settings and stuff are so scary. I mean, like, especially as a kid, like some of, like, Blix and and Meg Mucklebones, those are scary.
0: You know? the, the 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 chef demons that are like hacking up bodies on the table and it's showing yes. it yeah yeah, yeah those, that those... guy
1: was getting it real bad I'm just like <laughs> th- I'm just <laughs> like this scene's like five minutes long and that guy's still alive and he keeps getting the cleaver like I know.
2: Um,
1: yeah. are you actually are you actually are you actually getting any meat off of them at this point like
0: <laughs> it's just for giggles,
2: <laughs> right?
0: Of of the oh, demons and, that you should have just killed while they were sleeping, but you know, right?
1: And 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 the only shots of of darkness, uh, is, his throne is is from the back, um, where it's just constantly weeping like Claire's <laughs> like litter uh <laughs> nail polish down the back
2: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: and that that's one other large change that the um the director's cut made is you don't see darkness until like the end of the film. Uh no
2: it's not the end. Well, it's like it's, about an yeah. hour.
0: It, it's, it's toward toward the, the back half. Um his speeches he does in the beginning are done from like behind, so you're just looking at the Uzi chair and not actually seeing darkness. When he's yeah, ambly- I I thought that 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 was bu- also
1: a bizarre choice because you see darkness so early and like they do like some kind of post-production work where they they um they illuminate his his uh his eyes with the contacts so they're green and his nails are green for some reason which is a very like Batman and Robin like I know, Beyond Gang, <laughs> Joel Schumacher
0: popped up to very give some tips,
2: <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> um But I thought it was I like I I think it's really cool when Darkness appears to Blix, but it's just like his shadow. But I always thought yeah. it was like a bizarre choice of wait, but you were like we've seen you, so why are we disguising you? But and I, don't, I think it's night at that point because they've, they've established the campfire, so he could just appear before them. Um, once again, knowing that he doesn't, te- in the director's cut, that he isn't displayed fully that early on, makes that scene make more but, sense. And there's well, still um, the, the
2: sun the,
0: coming up, so I think it was risky. Yeah, the
2: campfire, yeah, the, the sun is coming up at that part with the campfire. It's like right before dawn when he shows up. And so that's the only reason why I was like, oh, okay, well, it makes sense for him to be covered up because he says, you lie, here is dawn. You're right. You know, when they're talking about the the unicorn still being alive. So uh, there is that. Now, um, I agree that it's better to hide him for a while, like don't show the monster until later, but there's this one little part, this one shot where he's, you know uh when when blix is like what do they look like lord and then he you know, grabs the knife or whatever off the table and goes fool and slams it onto Blix's forehead. And then you see Tim Curry looking down and articulating his face with the glowing eyes. And he's just like, the creature has a single, you know, single horn spiraling like an antenna straight toward heaven. And like, you got his face behind that. Like, that had so much power to it that that was just like, that was another one of those scenes that was very memorable to me when i was growing up was just that one particular scene because although you don't see him again after that for a while uh just having that glimpse of him was like oh snap (laughs) and then here's jack and jack is like little forest boy oh boy yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) and it and that that scene where it's framing his face really echoes the um the the fantasia skit with the devil on the mountain yes. well, not skit but the that segment um where his wings yes. unfurl and he has the same sort of like presence so
2: it's like a nice, an iconic about,
0: shot
1: you're talking about uh balrog's tight five day yeah <laughs> yes yes
2: but uh also also a couple of other things about that um that shot also is a nice bookend with the ending of the u s release where darkness you know like the the everybody happy at the end waving at each other with the triumphant music and then it fades to darkness darkness's you know face, and he laughs and roars, and then it fades to black from that, like, showing that, you know, he is still a part of everybody, and you can't get rid of him. Like, that, that's a really good um, mirror of that. And the reason why his eyes are glowing, I don't know about the fingers, but the eyes is because um, the critter that's supposed to be his father, that you sort of see in the director's cut, also has glowing green eyes, so it's like a family trait, I guess. So... Um oh and in the original version they had to cut it for budgetary reasons but Darkness was supposed to have gigantic wings that sprouted during that fight with Jack at the end of the movie so you know the fan- like Fantasia was one of the references for this movie as you might imagine and yes there were going to be big bat wings but budget <laughs> Plus, poor Tim Curry probably could not handle any more costuming, like <laughs> as it was. So. Yeah, yeah
1: but his Stuntman was fine. Yeah, I did. Right? I did. I did. Like, I, I, it, I've gotten to the point where I just can't unsee the things, like the production things in movies, yes. especially. Of a movie of this age, so like I'm like, oh, I'm really glad that you put in so many insert shots of actual Tim Curry in between all the shots of the stuntman in the yeah. in the low low poly darkness model where the mouth is yeah. just open, and I'm like, I bet if I pause this, I can see his eyes.
2: <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I know, like I, that, yeah.
1: But it's fine. It's great because I like. Even with stuff like that, I'd much prefer, like, these physical actors, these physical props, this real fire, which, once again, like, the the number of open flames that these actors are working around, especially at the later part of the, like, latter half of this movie, is insane, and you'd never see, like, uh never see big air quotes because like i'm not going to speak for everyone but you would never see a production a big production with that many like actual scene hazards for actors to work around nowadays
0: yeah and that that did end up posing a problem they lost the entire um sound stage uh to a fire actually Ah.
2: They did. They did the forest sound stage, but that actually had nothing to do with all of the fire at the end of the no, movie. No. That was a totally different set. Yeah. Um, what happened is all of the gases from because like the the giant trees on the forest sound stage um, were made out of you know like synthetic stuff and spray painted to look like real trees. Then they took actual branches and stuff to put as the roots and so on. But the base of it was all this this fake stuff, and then of course they were blowing all of the the styrofoam around for the snow and whatnot. So at one point or another, all the gases built up at the top of the soundstage, which is metal, metal roofing. And then, you know, you have summertime, and it's like a 100-something degrees up there, and something caught fire, and then the whole soundstage burned down. And I don't know about all the critters, but um, basically what they would do with the pigeons and such would be to open up the doors, and the pigeons would fly out, and get some fresh air and sunlight, and then go back in to the soundstage, you know, back to their home after that. And so the pigeons all flew out of the soundstage, and, you know, the guard guy is just watching, eating his sandwich, and all of a sudden everything (laughs) bursts into flame, and, um, you know, so the pigeons made it. I don't know about all the other critters, because there were all different types of, of creatures living in there, But, um, hopefully with the doors open, they were okay. But nobody, none of the people were killed either, because that was, like, an in and off time. But the entire soundstage burned down. (laughs) So. Well. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I, well, it's interesting that, of course, the, 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 the set with the, uh, various open flames was not the one that, that
2: burst into
1: flames. Um, and uh, you know you should really air out your. Oh right, you had animals man. What? Mm. <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm I... the logistics of the soundstage. Like the more I'm thinking about them, are making me angry. So I think we should <laughs> we should go back and wrap up this final fight between good and evil. Uh, oh, um, I do want to talk about that this like the the choice that Jack needs to make and how it it's completely like it doesn't feel earned so um Jack is 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 aiming an arrow uh Lily has decided that she wants to kill the unicorn uh for no reason it literally comes out of nowhere other than she's been seduced by by the darkness by um, and and jack's having this really hard time like he, because he keeps getting, he's he's being told by gump to just shoot her uh because she's she's turned and she's going to kill the unicorn but i never get that tension because it never feels like she's actually turned because that turn happens so quickly. Like, her character is... I feel like her kind of, like, awful characterization in the director's cut would actually actually bring tension to this scene, because then the viewer actually has to judge whether or not you think that she has been seduced by this evil.
2: Well, the way that I always read it from when I was little was that Lily is tricking darkness. She is pretending that she's going to kill the unicorn and she intended the entire time to set it free. Exactly. And and so like she's just tricking darkness. Now, that trickery actually works better with the director's cut when she's already manipulative as hell to every little every single person she encounters. So, uh, it definitely feels more earned in that version. However, Jack's I trust you Lily and then deciding to shoot darkness instead makes more sense in the US version when he's head over heels in love with her and trusts her with his life versus in the director's cut when sad little Jack is being duped by you know Lily over and over again and like maybe he loves her at the end and maybe that's just like proof of his finally actually loving her but I don't know like it doesn't seem um quite as convincing to me there. But also Gump, um, a thing about Gump is that at first, when they first cut roll up on this scene, Gump says, Jack, you've got to trust her with your, your heart, not with your eyes, you know? And yeah. then he turns around and says, kill her, she's going to do it! And that, that turn from one to the other, almost instantaneously, doesn't make any sense in the U.S. version, but in the director's cut... He's shown to be, you know, so capricious that he's back and forth and just, like, changing on the drop of a hat that it makes more sense for his character and the director's cut uh, for him to make that change and go from trust her to kill her, you know?
1: Yeah, because that's, but, like, instant. Like, he, like it don't... It is, it is. Like, don't... Li- listen. Listen, Jack. Li- listen, Jack. You're going to see her, and she's going to be cosplaying Evelyn from Masters of the Universe. <laughs> but <laughs> don't look at that trust her heart and then he gets gump gets a look at her he's like nope she's evil you need to do it do it now <laughs> i know uh,
0: and, and a large part of that i think for gump is that they can't afford at all for this to go wrong like the, the right. this is the last the last unicorn and if it's gone that's it the, this isn't like a it's not something that they can fix um, afterwards if, if yeah. he doesn't make the right choice. So it, erring on the side of caution for Gump would be like the prudent thing to do because he's like the fairy boss and he has a lot of responsibilities. Uh, even if he's going to be kind of like wishy-washy about some stuff uh, he, he definitely in this instance uh, they, they can't risk that. Right. And then Jack just kind of makes the choice. Um
2: so what do you think about Jack's choice
0: the, his, his choice not to shoot her
2: well um i I was talking to Dave because oh. he hadn't he hadn't said his opinion about like the the whole choice and and you know its importance of how it landed for him and so on. so
0: in in the in the theatrical version because this entire movie is rotating around the power of love. I mean that that's literally what stays gump's hand and saves the day here. Uh it it's a valid choice for Jack in that moment. Uh specifically when Gump told him to hey, believe in yourself and believe in whatever, you know, whatever you whatever you need to do and then Jack just does that. He goes with he goes with his gut and even though he sees that um she's been turned to evil, um, he, he can still feel that there's a glimmer of some because again, this m- movie's trading in that idea of there's good in everyone, and then there's also evil in everyone. Like n- like that that's across the board. Darkness also has bits of good in him. Every there, uh, that's what he specifically says to Jack in the end is like, hey, "I'm I'm you know we're like brothers. I'm part of you, and you're part of me and." That's just how it's it's always going to be Uh, that it works really well there in the director's cut. It's a little harder to parse that he wouldn't just shoot her. Yeah. Because because of her character and how how she is um, that there those flaws that everyone carries with them are a lot stronger. Uh, they're not just subtle things. And that being the case, if she was turning to the evil, um, that turn would have been a lot harder, like a, 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 more, a stronger turn. So, him erring on the side of caution here is a little weird. Um, but that's they decided to go with that anyway. <laughs>
2: Well, uh, the very, very ending. So um, the very end of the movie is different in the U.S. version and the director's cut. So in the U.S. version, uh, Jack Jack wakes up Lily by getting the ring and giving her a kiss, saying I love you. She says, well, she doesn't say she loves him, but she kisses him. And then they run off into the wilderness together and wave at the fairies. Uh, who are there with the unicorns. And then as the scene gets all happy and stuff, and, you know, fades, starts to fade, Darkness's face is superimposed. He cackles and then disappears. Um, Kind of reminding you that Darkness is not truly gone and will come back. Uh, I like that ending better than what they did in the director's cut. In the director's cut, Lily wakes up after Jack gets the ring and, you know, puts it on her. And she says, oh, I had this horrible dream. All these bad things happened, but I learned some things about myself. And then she says, you and I are from different worlds. And they both say that they love each other. But then she goes off and goes back home and says that she's going to come back to see him another time. And then he goes derp-a-derp-a-derp, and then runs off into the forest by himself and then waves goodbye to everybody, all the fae, uh, on his own. I, and then as he runs off into the sunset, it just fades to black and there's no darkness and there's no Lily. It's just Jack being duped by Lily yet again and running off into the forest. The end. Yeah, after
0: she gave him and back, I she got, <laughs> took the ring off and gave it. She's like, you hang on to this. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. You're my she little did. boy she toy and I'm ring. your sugar mama and here's your little trinket. <laughs>
2: Yeah, like, instead of, instead of, um, being with him, because, you know, like, having the ring was how she was supposed to get married to this person, right? Well, then she ends up giving it to him, like, no, I'm not gonna marry you. (laughs) I forgot that whole, that whole thing, but you're right, that, that also happened. So, it's, it's a vastly different ending.
0: Yeah, and we also, the lines, because we don't see darkness again, and the lines we get with him saying, um, we're like, or I think it's something like, we're like brothers, you know, we're the same. And uh, that that rings a little more true in this because both of them had just been basically shafted by Lily. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I, I still like... Darkness being imposed, superimposed at the end of the movie. I still like that element. I mean, like I know that that's like just showing you visually the thing that was being implied. Yeah, uh, which works uh, works a little bit better, I guess, with the U.S. version because the U.S. version is very, very much like uh, you're taking a backseat and not having to analyze anything. Um, but I still. Like I like that kind of reminder. I, all I think
0: years. it's t- it actually would have been almost more effective in the director's cut with Jack just running off by himself into the sunset, and then you get darkness popping back up, and you're like, oh yeah, everything's pretty much screwed. <laughs> like but he'll yeah. be back.
2: I yeah, I think I think that if if they had in if that ending with darkness's face popping up had been in the director's cut, that would have been the best ending in my
0: opinion yeah. <laughs> I I I He's like, I just Jack come with me and we'll be princes of the universe together <laughs> I I
1: I'm just a fan of the very like 80s like we're not we're just going to do like the weird thing at the end that will serve as sequel bait uh for anything that we could possibly make after this So I, like, every single time I see, like, the villain, like, superimposed, popping back up at the end of a movie, I always just think of them looking like straight on dead center frame just like and I'll see you in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean,
2: I I I guess that is true but uh Ridley Scott and everybody who was working on this like none of them were thinking about like a franchise. Oh yeah. Oh I that. know. They were Like if Ridley Scott called this like I just wanted to do a fairy tale movie and then I got it out of my system and that's the way he refers to this movie I I had to get it out of my system and that's why he did Legend. So he wasn't intending to ever do like another one, but like, yeah, that you're right, that is definitely like sequel hooky. It, it,
1: it's 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 really it's really one of my favorite like 80s fantasy movie tropes. Like, y- you'd be surprised how often it comes up. Like, it fantasy movies and horror movies, it, I, I, like I said, they might as well just like, and I'll see you in three years when the sequel comes out. Oh, it's great!
0: It's great. I love it. Yeah, there's al- there's always got to be the uh, Freddy or Jason hand grabbing the thing and popping up at the last yep. second before the credits roll.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so Leonard, uh, hearing about how the director's cut varies from the uh, U.S. release that you saw, like, what do you what do you think about what you've heard about that?
1: It feels like so. Like you said, like you said, Jala, there's like, they're basically two completely different movies and they kind of occupy from, because it, it like the themes are matured up for the director's cut. It almost feels like a movie that is totally acceptable. Like theatrical cut is for your like kids from like, like 10, 12, so on. Yeah. And, like, the director's cut is, okay, rewatch the, like, you're older now, rewatch the theatrical, and rewatch the director's cut, and kind of make your own decision on which one you, you like more. Or, in as you mentioned in your case, you seem to like both of them um, for, mm-hmm. for entirely different re- reasons, and I think that's actually really fascinating, because that's something that you don't get in film a lot it's like film and literature like once it's there it's there and it's solid and it's it's a thing it's that thing forever but here we have like the two versions of this thing that somehow are compatible with one another based on on the viewer's maturity at least that's the the way i i see it
2: yeah, I think for me, um, the theatrical release is, is just such a different animal that, okay, I recognize that the, the theatrical release is super, super choppy because, like, this movie was edited heavily twice. <laughs> so um, that is that is a product of that whole production, uh, you know, sequence and what, what Ridley Scott was going through at that time. Um, and... There are a lot of points where I was watching the director's cut, and I was just like, "Man, I wish I knew that when I saw the theatrical U.S. theatrical version." But I also understand why it's not in the U.S. theatrical version. Um, but they are definitely like they occupy two different places in in you know fantasy genre for me because they are trying to do different things, and the way that the movie was cut for the U.S. theatrical makes it. A different, you know, like gives it a different goal and changes um a lot of the tone and theming of it enough that it really does. It feels like it's it's weirdly two different movies entirely. Um, so I can I can appreciate them both for the things that they do. Um, I think, of course, as a, a mature adult at this point, that. Overall, I still think that the director's cut is the better version because it is so fleshed out and nuanced. And all of the really great acting is found in all the stuff that was chopped out of the U.S. release. Um, however, the U.S. release as like a, a relaxing, don't have to think too much fantasy film um, with an awesome soundtrack. Like if you want to hear that, if you want to see that, and just relax and, and you know have a nice chill time watching a a simple movie with some archetypes in it, then the U S release is perfectly fine. And like they can both be things that I watch and I will rewatch both versions of this film in the future continue to rewatch the theatrical release and also watch the director's cut, uh, knowing when I go into it, what kind of a thing I'm signing up for and then picking according to how I'm feeling that day. Right. (laughs) So, so Dave what is your opinion on u uh, s and director's cut versions?
0: Kind of the same idea uh, I think that they both um, serve they, they both serve a different purpose and you can kind of enjoy them in a different way uh, mood depending and then there's room within the director's cut uh, because we just took like one long look at it uh to watch that again and have a little bit more time to look at each individual character and kind of see more nuance because there's there's more going on there, um, particularly with the acting and the time that they had to put into these scenes that um, there's more room for interpretation and to kind of see what this thing is doing thematically as well. It's a, it's a little bit deeper than just one cursory glance can give uh, room for. And that 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 still applies I think to the um the theatric release as well. Um these are both served by multiple viewings uh just as enjoyment and also um on, on a deeper level. So I don't see um I don't have a feeling of like one's better than the other. Uh they each just do their own thing um independently uh better than the other but yeah. but they're they they're, they're stand alone enough um that you can enjoy them both um in, in their own way.
2: Yeah. It's a shame cuz I think the director's cut is only available on like DVDs or Blu-rays or something. I don't think it's um uh digital.
0: N- yeah, it's not. I I spent a good, <laughs> good amount of time trying to track it down just to watch it. Uh, and not have to purchase the whole thing again on short notice, but um, yeah, the 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 Blu-ray transfers um, I think were the only option. Uh, and one thing I didn't care for as much is because of the because of the age of the material uh, and maybe how the masters are when they when they copied it over. Uh, these were actually pretty grainy. In a in, in a not nostalgic way, it like looked like the transfer was was kind of poor. Um, maybe that was just the, the screen that I'm watching it on. But a lot of the um, the practical effects and the screen um, artifacts were were really easy to see on on this kind of go around where I don't recall it being the case um, the last time I watched it. But that that could also just be the size of the screen.
2: Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I have a DVD copy of it, the Ultimate Edition on DVD that I bought a long, long time ago, um, and I didn't have any of that problem, except, of course, on the deleted footage and stuff because that's not, you know, yeah. mastered over. Yeah, and it,
0: and it know, could just be like that, like that they were that, using an upscaling um, for the Blu-ray, and that, uh, in, in the process of yeah. doing that, made it kind of, like, worse off of the, the, whatever the VHS yeah. masters were.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um... So yeah, uh, it's worth, in my opinion, it is definitely worth picking up a copy of this, and also watching like that making of and watching the deleted scenes. And I, it's not just because I I like this movie; it's because they're it, because they're so disparate. Uh, it's worth seeing all the rest of the materials behind it that went into the making of these two different entities these two different animals you know <laughs> mm. because they are so so different that it i think that anybody who's interested in this movie or who likes the u.s release uh or you know european release of the film uh would would dig checking out the rest yeah. of it. it it adds a uh, it, add know, a, it adds the, a lot of uh, context
0: to the property as a whole yes and it's a good it's a, it's a about an hour long of a making of documentary and that's always fun. I think there's a um I want to say they transcribed it into a book version of the making of. So there's that too which Ooh. may have extra stuff in there. I I came across it cursorily um just trying to look up extra stuff for this because I was I was really interested in trying to find the original screenplay, not what they filmed off of, but like what they were going to do with this because that still existed as a screenplay but no luck unfortunately
2: yeah i would have loved to at least read the screenplay because in that making of all the actors were like man i read that screenplay and i was sucked in and as soon as i put it down i had to read it all over again and like they were talking about how amazed they were at that original screenplay, whatever it was, and I'm like, no <laughs> Somebody please yes, release that.
0: Yes. And just, just the idea um that they the the producers and the the writers and even um a lot a lot not not the actors in particular, but the um set designers. Makeup artists yeah. and yeah. everyone was just looking at this script and going, like, How are we supposed to film? Like this is gonna cost so much I think there was a point where he's looking at um uh because Ridley Scott's very very infamous for his um storyboards and they're just looking and going like that's a million dollars right there that's you know just <laughs> looking at yep. what what they were trying to do with this um this this product and how they were going to bring it to life and just the joy they had in trying to figure that out um but then ultimately like Huge chunks of it were 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 scrapped just just because of cost. Like the the, the I believe one of the um, I guess a, a a bit would be the unicorns as they walked were supposed to like sprout flowers in their footsteps. Like that's the level of fantasy that this was supposed to evoke. Uh, and but just for practical and budgetary reasons, they kind of like had to not do that. Uh,
1: that is. I did you, you know now that you're you're talking about the unicorns I I that was a little camera effect that I thought was uh pretty good at making them seem extra ethereal which is that they are seemingly
0: only filmed in slow motion yes with their sweet whale calls I mean unicorn noises
2: yeah Hump, humpback whale calls and then also always lit from underneath so they look like they're glowing as much as possible mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah, to the, I think they said it was. Was there eight of them? There was mu- there was multiple of the horses.
2: There, there were several, several horses for sure. But there, it it upset me because I was like, they keep on calling it a mare, but that's a stallion. I know those dangly bits are not mare bits. You know, <laughs> like that's definitely not a mare. You know, <laughs> but anyway, that's not yeah. the point. But yeah, there were several horses, and there was only one that was female, so uh, all the rest of them were male.
0: Yeah, and
2: they also had like a, a hard time trying to get them back to the states because they went to Andalusia in Spain to get them, and then like there was like transport issues because like all the horse carriers, there was some kind of international horse competition, and like it was this whole thing. Like all the production on this was an endeavor. Let's just put it that way.
0: yeah and and for all of that we we really we didn't spend much time at all on the unicorns but i think we can save that for a a future episode unicorn special so because we have a few other films that we can take a look at that will specifically um focus on unicorns and we can dig into some more of the lore at that time i think we've got this one pretty wrapped up
2: yeah the only thing that i wanted to add about the unicorns is that it doesn't happen in the director's cut only in the, um, us version, but Jack and Lily are basically mirrored with the unicorns all the time because of how it's shot. And then keep on flipping between images of Lily and the unicorn, Lily and the unicorn, Jack and the unicorn, um, just to try to, you know, beat you over the head with this whole idea of innocence and, and, you know, entrapment and all this other stuff. So, um, that was something they used as a visual effect that they did not do in the director's cut because, of course, in the director's cut, they are not pure and innocent, so they could not do that in yeah. that version.
0: And, and that enough. that one that was one other part um, when they're finding when Gump and and crew and Jack are finding out information from what happened because they they just happened upon the dead uh, unicorn, uh, and in the theatrical version, it's it's really weird because in the director's cut we know that jack speaks to animals very implicitly and they kind of just don't bother with that in the director's cut but in the theatrical he's clearly kind of given information from the mayor
2: yeah so that's actually a scene that I think works a little bit better in the theatrical version. There's there's a few little mm-hmm. parts where I think it's it works a little bit better in the U.S. version versus how it was cut for the director's cut. But yeah, overall, um, I think we pretty much have, have uh, gotten this under wraps. Light and darkness have been uh, put into balance.
1: Oh wait a second! So I oh. just I just fixed the movie to bridge the gap between the, the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Uh, which is Jack shoots Lily, <laughs> um, Jack does shoot Lily, the unicorn escapes, Jack has his fight with the darkness, with darkness, and just have the mare run in and impel darkness into the void. And
0: then...
2: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah.
0: And then, I, I and think the, it and was then, part I, of what they were going to do. Oh, that's funny. Yeah.
1: Well well and then and then have Jack find the ring and because it's a it's a legend fairy tale blah 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 he puts it on and that's when Lily's like yeah you know what I think I'm gonna go back to my real life yeah, did you just shoot me you, cause you killed <laughs> yeah. cause you killed me at all but you hold on to the ring maybe I'll come back one day Tim Curry laughs at you the
0: end fixed <laughs> Thanks, Tom Cruise. <laughs> okay, that's it. Now we can close out the book on Yes. Life. Okay. <laughs> yep, that, that'll wrap us up. Uh in case folks um did somehow miss our last episode where you where you joined us, um Jala, where can we find you? Elsewhere on the internet.
2: I am Jalachan in places. Any social media network or whatever, that's what I am. You can find me there. I'm on Twitter, I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram, all those other various things, YouTube. Um, also on Twitch, so you can find me in various places. I also am a podcaster on The Level Podcast, uh, TheLevelPodcast.com. Which is part of the DuckFeed TV network. So that is me. How about you guys?
1: Leonard. Yes, people can find me online uh, on Twitter at Dr. Faust is Dead. People can also find me on YouTube where I occasionally uh, release video essays about video games, mainly narratives and theming. Um, And that, those are literally the only presents online that I have.
0: Um, (laughs) Dave, how about yourself? You can find me on Twitter at Centinot underscore plus. It will be in the notes as always. Our wayward, uh, absent host today, Cameron. You can also find him on Twitter at night underscore twin, and that's night without a K. And if you'd like to listen to some of the older podcast episodes, you can find all the backlog at monsterdeer.monster. That's still my favorite ending to a website because it's monsters. How good is that? Yay. But yes, um. We, send us reviews if you like what you heard. Um, constructive criticism is great. If you didn't like something, let us know so we can pretend to do something about it, because we're just gonna do what we're gonna do. And with that, we will see you all next time for some more Legativerse. verse
2: Bye-bye, folks. Goodbye.